You're listening to the Revision Path Podcast, a weekly showcase of the world's black graphic designers, web designers, and web developers. Through in-depth interviews, you'll learn about their work, their goals, and what inspires them as creative individuals. Here's your host, Maurice Cherry. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Revision Path. My name is Maurice Cherry, and before we jump into this week's interview, we've got a new review on Apple Podcasts. Been a long time coming. We haven't had one for a while. Uh, This one is from Sam Greater Than, and it's titled Great Podcast. Here it is. This is a really great podcast that gives a platform to the many diverse black creatives that are out there. Maurice has been able to get the stories of so many great creatives with various backgrounds. Love it. Sam Greater Than, thank you so much for that wonderful, wonderful review. If you want to leave a review for Revision Path, you can leave it on um, Apple Podcasts. You can leave it on Podchaser. You can leave it on Radio Public. There's a lot of places you can leave these reviews. You can leave one on Stitcher. Let us know. We'll read it right here on the show. And, you know, speaking of ways to kind of show your love for Revision Path, have you taken our annual audience survey yet? You know, we really want to hear your feedback about the podcast and learn more about you and how we can make Revision Path better. To take the survey, head over to revisionpath.com forward slash survey and fill it out. It should take about five minutes or so to do, and we'll choose one lucky survey respondent to win a $250 Amazon.com gift card. Again, that survey is at revisionpath.com forward slash survey. The survey will be up until the end of the month, May 31st. Thank you so much for your time and for your feedback. And now a word from our sponsor, Facebook Design. Facebook Design is a proud sponsor of Revision Path. To learn more about how the Facebook Design community is designing for human needs at unprecedented scale, please visit facebook.design. Now for this week's interview. I'm talking with Ed Williams, a Memphis-based storyteller and the founder of Make Entertainment. Let's start the show. All right. So tell us who you are and what you do. Hey, so my name is Ed Williams. I'm the founder of Make Entertainment, and I'm a storyteller. I'm also a designer, and uh, I'm just really happy to be here. (laughs) You know, I I have to say, during this time, I love to hear that. I'm glad to hear that you're (laughs) <laughs> yeah. I'm smiling. You can't see it, but I'm smiling. Okay. So before we kind of get more into like what you do and your background, of course, we are recording this during this whole COVID-19 public health crisis, this pandemic. How are you holding up? I am holding up. I have my good days and my bad days. I have my good weeks and my bad weeks. Therapy has been incredible during this time. It's been so helpful, but it's managing and honoring just both sides of the spectrum as far as emotions and feelings are concerned. Just, you know, realizing that we are in a, in the middle of a pandemic, you know, something that you read in, in history books. We're right now living through it. And that's that can be a bit much. And, you know, just you know, being concerned about loved ones and things like that. But I am holding up fairly well. This this is a good week. Yeah, for sure. I feel you about there being good weeks and bad weeks like. I was recording some episodes, I don't know, at least about a month or so ago, maybe a little bit over a month. And it was right around the time, I'd say like mid-March, when the quarantine or the self-isolation, whatever people are calling it, when it was sort of just starting to get rolled out nationally. And prior to that, I was supposed to be in D.C. for something that got canceled. I was Mm. supposed to be in Austin for something that got canceled. 
And so I think I was still trying to just kind of wrap my head around it because it was still pretty early. Yeah. And I was just telling people like, you know, I'm taking it, you know, one day at a time. It is now, as we are recording this for me, it's like day 40 something, 44, 40 something. something like <laughs> and I feel you about there being good weeks and bad weeks. Like last mm-hmm. week for me was a bad week. Yes. This week, I feel like I have to like claim it with intention at the beginning of the week. Mm-hmm. And I feel like if I can see that through at the beginning of the week, I'm good. Yeah. Because I'll hit a part of the day where I'm just like, you know what? I can't do this. Right. <laughs> I'm just going to go and like stare at a corner for an hour or something or do something else, you know? So it can mm-hmm. be tough to like focus. At least yes. for me, it has been. It has been. It's been tough to get focus and motivation to get things done because I'm like, well, is anybody really getting stuff done right now? I see a lot of people baking bread. Right. <laughs> I don't know if I really understand the bread phenomenon. I don't bread. know if this is like some instinctual Hates. medieval kind of a, a coping process. I mean, I right. think bread is cool. Bread is cool. I, I have not been spurred to baking yet. I have not made any isolation loaves. I've not made any, you know, pandemic pans of focaccia or whatever. But I mean, more power to folks that are doing it. It's it's not my ministry, but hey. Yeah. First of all, I'm loving these names. Isolation loaves and pandemic pans of whatever. <laughs> like trademark those if you can. Those are those are <laughs> I'm here for it. <laughs> so let's talk about your work that you do at the National Civil Rights Museum. Like what do your work days look like now at a time when, I mean, people aren't really going outside of their houses for stuff like this? Right. Well, I have to say the majority of my work does not concern exhibition design. Like That's okay. not my forte. Um, so I don't have anything to do with how the ex- exhibitions look, um, how gallery spaces look. But what I do do and what I started doing when I got there is just figuring out how to clean up the system creatively. We had a lot of different programs, signature programs, events, fundraisers. We had just a lot of stuff going on. So I came into the job noticing that we pretty much kept rebranding all of our signature programs year after year after year after year. And I was like, what is going on here? Why are y'all doing this? I made it a point to create evergreen branding for each signature program while also maintaining some consistency throughout the entirety of the whole brand. So my whole thing has been going in and finding where the system is weak creatively and brand wise and finding ways to improve that system, the processes around it, and really just implementing stronger brand identity, messaging, and communication through mostly it has been just our signature events and programming so far. Okay. Are you finding that you're just having to move more things online, just like more virtual stuff? Well, yes and no. We kind of took a break from a lot of our events and programming. Right now, we're in the process of figuring out where the museum stands now. Like, what is our positioning now? And um, just really having, so what that means to me is it's an opportunity for us to really sit down and fine tune a lot of things in the system that have not been working. 
both creatively and strategically. So just brand messaging, brand storytelling, all our communications, digital platforms, our website, and other communication pieces, just really sitting down and running everything for, through a fine-tooth comb, getting all the data, running all the analysis, and, and, and seeing what we need to be doing right here, right now, and moving forward to create a stronger presence for the museum uh, moving forward because we don't know how much longer we're going to be here right, right. and uh, there's some risk opening up the museum at such a critical time we don't want to be you know reliable for anybody catching the virus let alone passing away from the virus so we're still you know figuring out where we are strategically where we are in, in our community and nationwide and internationally all at the same time how did you first get started at the museum so I was living in, I was actually living with my parents. I had just moved from, well, not just moved, but I had moved from Atlanta back to with my parents in North Carolina. And um, in June of 2018, I had some friends down here in Memphis that I had met uh, on Facebook three or four years ago. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to come down here and I'm gonna see y'all. We're going to hang out. And they were so excited. Got down here. I had no idea I would fall in love with Memphis the way that I did. Mm. And it was just addictive. As soon as I stepped foot off the plane, I was like, okay, I have to move here. And um, stayed for three days. And it was like connecting with first cousins. Like that's how good the relationship is with them. And I said, you know what? I'm going to be back. I'm going to move down here. And I went searching. I went hunting all over the internet for whatever jobs I could find in Memphis. And then this position popped up. And at first I wasn't going to apply at all. I just had, I was kind of over the nonprofit thing. I had been doing nonprofit for years. Like the bulk of my design career has been with nonprofits. I just didn't feel like it anymore. And it just kept popping up time after time after time again. I said, you know what, let me just go ahead and submit my resume and my cover letter. And I did it in like two or three o'clock in the morning. I woke up the next day and my now boss, she had emailed me. She said, when can I interview you? And uh, it was the most unconventional interview process. And I loved it. I mean, we, we pretty much sealed the deal over the phone. We had like maybe one FaceTime call. And then that was in August. So about in September, I moved down here to Memphis and started the job. Wow. Sounds like it all happened really quickly. It did. <laughs> it really did. Yeah, from June to, to September. Yeah, one thing after the other. What is it about Memphis that you fell in love with? Memphis is just a special... It, Memphis has a soul like no other city. From the outside-in looking perspective, I just really felt something unique. And I, I've lived in places. I've lived in uh, Maryland, like really close to D.C., um, of course, North Carolina, different parts of North Carolina, Atlanta. But Memphis, I just knew. It's like my soul had a connection with its soul. The people down here, I have met some incredible creatives down here in Memphis. And those creatives have become sort of like a family to me. I, I Just the bonds that I have with these people and how special they are and how much they mean to me. That's what's really keeping me here in Memphis. I mean, the Memphis, the city is incredible, but the people have really done a number on me for sure down here. Is there a big creative scene there? There is. There is a, oh my goodness. <laughs> <laughs> Memphis has 
I often feel because it's Memphis, it, you know, it's not Nashville, it's not Atlanta, it's not LA or New York, it's Memphis. So it, it doesn't get as much attention as it should. But there are some creative powerhouses and geniuses down here. I mean, just to name a few, my friends, Dana James Mwange, who is founder of Cheers Creative. She is a phenomenal web and brand strategist. We have Essel Tolson down here, who an incredible hand lettering artist and who is also an experienced director. My friend Darius Williams, phenomenal photographer. He's like Rembrandt with photography. Um, and we got some other great creators as well, but it's the level of professionalism, the level of skill, expertise, experience, all those things. It's a lot down here. It really is. People are always surprised. We've had a few people, um, friends or other people come and visit and there's, they're just enamored by what they see. They're always saying, how does this exist? You know, how did y'all find each other? Because this is not common where I'm at. This is hard to find where I'm at. You know, so Memphis just has a way of bringing people together and keeping them together. Wow, man. When they open up outside again, I got to visit Memphis. That sounds great. Please do. We got a seat at the table for you. Trust me. (laughs) (laughs) So just to, you know, kind of go back briefly to the museum stuff. So you mentioned being more of like a creative brand manager, not necessarily an exhibition designer. And we've had an exhibition designer here on the show before, and he sort of talked about his process with how the museum sort of gets, I think they get like requisitions for certain exhibits, and then they build everything kind of around that. I'm curious though, like, especially at this point in time where you're kind of having to re-examine not just the museum's role in the community, but also how people interact with it. Like, what is your process when it comes to your work? For the museum. Can you like talk a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. So I'm always going to go to the story first. What is the story that we're telling? And it's not so much making up a story, but it's identifying stories that are already within the museum that we just maybe not be telling or not telling enough that we can amplify or push a little bit more. So for instance, when we were in the process of rebranding one of our signature programs, King Day, We have King Day and we also have April 4th commemoration. So King Day is the celebration of Dr. King, his birthday. Mm -hmm. And then April 4th commemoration commemorates the day he was assassinated down here in Memphis, Tennessee, on the balcony of the the Lorraine Motel. Mm -hmm. So two very distinct events. But the problem was with King Day, we were using a lot of imagery and things like that that you would expect for the commemoration. That very... First and foremost, we, we kind of treat Dr. King as this God among men, right? He never gets an opportunity to be human mm-hmm. for the majority of him, himself in, in conversations and, and, and how he's positioned. So there was an opportunity with King Day as we were celebrating Martin, not necessarily Dr. King, but Martin and who Martin, the man, the husband, the father was. There was an opportunity to push that narrative over Dr. King. The God among men. So that led all of our creative conversations, that led the brand identity, that led everything from you know the font choices to the colors that we use, just really trying to make an effort to humanize Dr. King on King Day versus positioning him as he is in his role in the civil rights movement as Dr. King on April 4th. So I always approach things from that storytelling perspective because 
to me, story is the end all be all strategy for everything. It's everywhere. We use it all day, every day. Story is is truly king for me. And now before your work at the museum, uh, just from my research, I saw that you did a lot of brand management work for a nonprofit called Trails Ministries. Mm -hmm. What was that experience like for you? So that's where I got my start with design. Uh So I had graduated Edinburgh University of Pennsylvania with a degree in computer animation. And I wanted to work at Pixar. Ever since I saw saw Toy Story, I was just like, oh, my God, I have to be there. Like, I have to work at Pixar. I have to get a seat at the table. That's what I'm going for. I went to school. I worked my butt off for it. And uh, when it came time to apply for the internship, I was kind of declined several times. And I was like, you know what? Okay, that's cool. I'll just go and make my own Pixar. But that we'll get into that story uh, a little <laughs> bit later. Okay. But I needed to pivot because I couldn't find a job. You know, I was good at what I did, but animation on the East Coast wasn't really a thing unless you were like in New York. And at that time, I wasn't brave enough to go ahead and move to New York. And I didn't have the funds to do that. And I wasn't going to move to the West Coast because it's just as costly out there as it is living in New York. So my grandfather and my dad started Trails Ministries years ago. And it's a nonprofit that helps the incarcerated and those families impacted by incarceration, just the process of reentering into society and making sure that they're set up with everything that they need to reenter society and not go back. And um, the secretary at the time had called me up and she said, hey, you know, I know you're good with art. Would you mind helping us redo our buttons on the website? And I was like, you know, I had nothing else to do because I was again a college, college grad with no job, no money. And I was like, OK, cool. You know, what else do I have to lose? And as I was designing the buttons, I don't know, something in me was just like, it, it feels like there's more than buttons just wrong with this. I don't know. I didn't have the language for it back then. It was it was the brand, but I didn't have the language for it. And I started looking at just the different pieces of what made up trails, the logo, the website, the pamphlets, the brochures, all that stuff. And I said, I don't know what I'm sticking my toes into. But what I want to do is figure out how to elevate this because I see what they're doing and I see what they represent. And it's so big and there's so much potential. But the graphical elements that represent it aren't communicating that all the way. And that was how I got started with design and brand design is through trails. And I was just, you know, just there for all those years working to figure out what it is I was trying to do. And that, that adventure just led me down this road. That's how I literally got my start. And that's why I'm here right now at the National Civil Rights Museum designing. Now, you say you uh, went to college in Pennsylvania and then moved back there. Are you originally from Memphis? No, I'm a transplant. I'm originally from a small town outside of Pittsburgh uh, called Beaver Falls. Okay. All right. Was design kind of a big part of your growing up there in Beaver Falls? It wasn't, but art was. I was I was always drawing as a kid all the way up through actually be a past college. Um, I was always just and I still am. I just don't get to draw as much as I like to. But I'm an artist. Was your family really supportive of you kind of going this creative route? I know you mentioned your dad and granddad founded this this nonprofit. And now you want to do something that's kind of more in the arts. Were they, were they supportive of that? One hundred and twenty percent all day, every day, nonstop supportive. My parents have been phenomenal 
at always being supportive of what their children wanted to do. They would get behind us, you know, a lot good decisions and things like that, but exploration creatively or, you know, career wise or whatever the case was, they have always been supportive and being, you know, our, our backbone and strong parental figures and support no matter what it is we wanted to do. When did you know for sure that like art and design were something that you could do for a living? Back then, I wasn't so sure about the art. Art, I knew. I enjoyed it. I loved it. But I didn't see that much representation as far as people who look like me, black men or black women, making art a career. You know, the 90s was rough. (laughs) It was good, but it was rough. Mm -hmm. And uh, the early 2000s was the same. But uh, design, I saw that people had a need for design. So it was like the art shifted into design and I could still do air quotes art, but it was just in a different form than I would have than what I was used to. But it was also monetizable. People would pay me for that. They wouldn't necessarily pay me, you know, drawing a picture or whatever, but it was a design. Design got things done. Design impressed people. Design was able to communicate and speak differently than my art was. And that's when I kind of knew I can keep going with design as a as a potential career back then. So you mentioned going to Edinburgh University of Pennsylvania. What was that experience like? It was very white. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> it was very white. Um, no, it was uh, it was interesting. Small campus, of course, you know, it was a PWI, predominantly white institution, and there was a very small amount of, uh, you know, black folk on the campus, and we were, we were close-knit. But, um, yeah, I mean, it, it was interesting. I met a lot of great people who are still today my friends, who I love and, and cherish, cherish a whole lot. But it snowed a lot. We were right on, what is it? We were right by Lake Erie. So we got the snow effect or whatever they call that. So Mm -hmm. we would get crazy amounts of snow in one night. I mean, the snow would literally be covering up cars and we would still have to go to class. It would be below, it'd be like negative three degrees and we would still walk to class. I mean, there was no cancellation of classes because of snow. We just got used to it. Yeah. Yeah. So it was it was an interesting for what was it, four and a half years. And that's all I got to say on that. (laughs) (laughs) Do you feel like, though, it at least like prepared you for for getting out there as a designer? It prepared me in the sense of and I always had it like work ethic. I always I had it before college, but I think college just refined it like it it really helped me understand that. How do I say this? I guess it helped me understand just who I was as a person and what my what my brand of work ethic was. I was always the kid in the lab at like four or five o'clock in the morning, or I was always the kid learning more stuff to improve. Like I wouldn't just go off what the professor had said. I would take what they said apply that and then go find more information to make it better. And I just carried that same type of student mindset throughout, you know, throughout the rest of my career. All even now I still I still do that. If I learn something new, I go and, you know, go down these rabbit holes to figure out how do I make better than what I was already shown. That's what Edinburgh helped me to refine for sure or rather learn about myself. Would you recommend Edinburgh as a place for people to go? 
I don't know how much of it has changed. Uh, I mean, back when I went, let me, and it, it wasn't terrible. Like it wasn't an outright horrible experience. I have a lot of great memories. Mm-hmm. But, um, there always was something in the back of my mind that said I should have gone to an HBCU. Like I wanted the HBCU experience. Oh. You know, I, I pledged. I'm a member of Phi Beta Sigma. Okay. And it wasn't, it's not, Northern Greek life isn't the same as Southern Greek life, but that's going on a tangent. But I can recommend Edinburgh. It's, it's a unique experience. It's it, it, They won't lead you astray. I mean, a lot of people, you know, have gone off and been successful from Edinburgh. But I, I would recommend looking just a little bit more. Look, just, just look, look for a few more universities and colleges before you settle on Edinburgh. <laughs> gotcha, gotcha. And I mean, for you to go from, from Pennsylvania, where I don't... Are there any HBCUs in Pennsylvania? Yes. Lincoln? Lincoln. I figured there was at least one. Uh-huh. That's the only one I know if there's any more. Oh, Temple. Is Temple HBCU? Mm, no, I wouldn't say Temple no. HBCU. No. Okay. Lord, I hope they don't hang me on the cross for saying Temple. <laughs> <laughs> I think Temple is like HBCU-ish. Ish. Right. Yeah. But yeah. it's not a, It's not an HBCU. Okay. We can go with ish. Okay. (laughs) But like now you're in Memphis, which is like, I mean, I know Lemoyne Owen is in Memphis, but there are like other HBCUs that are like close by or at least in the Tennessee Uh, area. Uh Uh-huh. Acorn, you know, at Mississippi. And I'm going to stop there because I don't want, I don't want to like get them all wrong. I don't want to start naming stuff. (laughs) We can, we can just go with Lemoyne because I know, I know for a fact Lemoyne (laughs) is in Memphis. I know that much. So what was like your first job out of undergrad? Like you're out from Edinburgh, you're ready to go out into the world as a fresh graduate. What's kind of the first like sort of work that you're doing? It was trails. Okay. Trails, yeah. That was like additional school <laughs> for me. That was that was where I got to learn and experiment and also work for a paycheck at the same time. Okay. What was kind of the most memorable work experience you had there? Like, was there a specific project or anything that really stuck out to you? Rebranding the organization. And they, they still have, even though it's, it was my first rebrand like ever, I look at it it's like, oh my God, like, you need to fix this and fix that. But it was my first one. I was a young 20 something, but I rebranded the whole organization. I, I'll never forget how it transformed the culture and the mindset of everybody who worked there. They felt whole. They felt complete. Rather, we felt whole. We felt complete. We, we felt like it was the best representation of us that we had seen to date. Mm-hmm. And that feeling was incredible. So I kind of want to switch gears here a little bit because we focused on your work. We've we've talked about, you know, your education kind of leading up to where you are right now. How are you keeping motivated and inspired at a time like this? <laughs> that is the question of 2020. <laughs> it's difficult. I think that's that's the honest, most realest answer I can give. It's difficult. Like I said, some days are better than others. Some weeks are better than others. Um, last week, I, I I barely had the will to get up and cook. Mm-hmm. I was just so tired. And there, there, there's a lot of mental exhaustion going on that we're not aware about. I, I read something that said that we are in constant like flight or fight mode because we're having to adapt with all this new information that keeps coming out, we're just trying to figure out how to survive on a day-to-day basis. 
the weight of the change that has gone on, in addition to, you know, mourning and grieving things that we were excited about that are no longer happening this year. It's a lot that we're processing that we don't know that we're processing. And I think that is causing a lot of people to be mentally or rather holistically exhausted. Mm -hmm. So given the toll of all that, some days I got it. Some days I don't. Some days I can sit in front of this computer for hours. Some days you may get 10 minutes out of me. You know, (laughs) it just depends. And and I, I, I give myself the grace to be okay with the days that I'm dragging myself to this home office, sitting down and only being able to put in 10 minutes for the day. I like that word grace. I really like that. I think you're the second person that I've spoken with on the show. Like when I brought that up, that they were mentioning that specifically, they mentioned that specifically as something that they're not only giving themselves, but like trying to give other people too. Cause mm-hmm. I think earlier on in the in the the pandemic, when I say early, I mean like early March, mid March, something like that. I think we were still trying to we sort of saw this as a bit of a novelty. Like, okay, we're going to be inside for a few weeks; it'll be fine, you know. Right. Finally, learn to play the guitar, or I'll put together that (laughs) jigsaw puzzle I've been I've been meaning to do. But like now that we're seeing a mix of either extensions on sheltering in place. Or some states just being like, forget it, we're opening back up for business. It's Mm -hmm. causing this weird tension Mm -hmm. that didn't exist before. Because prior to this, you know, we were like, how do we cope? How do we get through? And I don't know if it's just like the current culture. I don't think it's necessarily the current culture, but maybe it is. But like the number of like hustlers and snake oil salesmen that have come out during this time that are like, if you don't come out of this Mm. pandemic with a new skill or (laughs) this, that, and the third, you didn't lack the time, you lack the discipline and all this kind of stuff. And I'm like, there are not words to put into place to describe what we are going through. We haven't went through it. Our parents haven't went through it. Our grandparents haven't went through it. This is a wholly Mm -hmm. new cultural experience. It's a shared grief, as you've put it, for the things that we've lost the lives that we lived before this events being canceled. You can't see loved ones. Like I feel so immensely bad for people who have lost loved ones during this Mm -hmm. because like you can't even go to a funeral. Right. Like you can't even sit, like you have to sit now with that grief alone in your home, which is also your gym and your daycare and your restaurant and your theater and like Mm -hmm. everything in one because you're not supposed to be, going out in social distancing. And so I feel like now, especially as states are starting to relax their, their shelter in place methods, like people are getting antsy. Like I Mm -hmm. was thinking like right around 420, I was like, Oh, people are going to be out. (laughs) (laughs) People are going to use this because like they need a release valve of some Mm -hmm. type, you know? And like, there's only so many IG lives that I can watch right? <laughs> before I'm like, okay, this is enough. Cause now television is starting to look like Instagram live yeah. because now you've got the celebrities that don't have the sets or the makeup or the crew or the fancy production. Mm-hmm. And they got to wing it from home. Mm-hmm. just like everybody else. And you'll see for some celebrities, it's like, Oh, once you strip all of that stuff away, they're, they're kind of boring. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> They're like, so oh, true. you don't like you don't you don't have it. Like this all of this was propping you up, you know, and mm-hmm. it, it has been hard to to maintain creativity, especially at a time when you're sitting with this and trying to deal with it, but yet depending on like the work that you do, like 
you know, neither one of us are our first responders. Like the work that we're doing right. is not out here saving lives. Right. Mm-hmm. But we still have to work. Like for me, I can just, you know, say on my end, like we had a product launch at work. We were putting on a new podcast and I mean, I didn't get any sort of break between, I think the start of my quarantine up until maybe last week I was Jesus. off last Friday. So it was just like every workday I was like going, 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 still yeah. dealing with all this. And then like you're getting sources from the news, from mm-hmm. national news. Like I I usually didn't pay much attention to local news. Now I'm watching local news every day to try to see like what do I need to be aware of. And it was I think I had mentioned something to like a friend of mine about how oh this Friday was gonna be like the first day that I've been off, like wow. off work since this all of this stuff happened. And, you know, and they said something really kind of snarky about like, oh, you know, congratulations to to Workaholics Anonymous. And I got irrationally angry so quickly. (laughs) Like, I'm not working because I want to. I'm working because I have to, because there are places where people are getting laid off. Like, I know friends that have gotten laid off. There are Mm -hmm. companies like the whole infrastructure that is the American dream is a house of cards. I think that's something we can all see at this point. And I don't mean to get too political on this show, but like the first week or two of all this happening, theaters are shut down. Food supply chain is messed up. Shipping supply chain is messed up. Like restaurants are out of businesses. Like all, all sorts of stuff is just like crumbling, crumbling down. Yeah. And you know, and I work in tech slash media, so it's already kind of a precarious sort of area to be in anyway. Mm Mm-hmm. And like at my you know employer, they've been like, look, you know, we're not letting anybody go. That's not a thing you have to worry about. So I do like that level of security. Yeah, that's but good. there's still the the expectation of performance at a certain level because there are these milestones we have to be there, these projects that we have to do, and mm-hmm. you know, I've been fortunate that the company that I work for has exhibited that grace to say if you need to take a day, like take a day or something like that. And I work from home already, so I've been kind of flexible in being able to take more breaks during the day when I need to if I'm just not feeling it, you know? Mm, yeah, yeah. But especially now, we're, I think we're at this point where it is no longer a novelty. Like, this is what it is. This is what it is. Exactly I, that. Like, in that first month, I know there was, you know, you start seeing all these, like, novelty Zoom backgrounds and and, <laughs> and stuff like that. And it's like, yeah. I mean, that stuff is is fun, but... At the end of the day, is it really, it, it sort of like tries to inject some levity into this already stressful situation, but yeah. I don't know. I feel like I'm rambling here. Please feel free no, to stop me. At no, point. you're not. It's, it's all relevant. It's so on point. And I agree. By the way, I saw that tweet and I, I couldn't have rolled my eyes hard enough. The one about if you didn't learn a new skill and whatever, yeah. whatever. Your situation isn't the same as everybody else's. I, I happen to be single. I have uh, no kids. I live by myself. I have more time than two people or one person raising three kids who has to be parent, teacher, cook, house cleaner, like all the other stuff. They're not going to be able to do any of that. Their their days are booked solid now to Mm -hmm. where they used to be able to send their kids off to school, whatever type of school that was, and have some leeway in the day. But now that the kids are home... It's a lot for a lot of people. And then also people juggling losing jobs, having, you know, losing houses and having to move back home. I mean, everybody's situation. We're not on a global sabbatical. Yeah. (laughs) I was listening to some news thing. It might have been from like AP or something where they called this a hibernation period. I'm like, 
No one is hibernating. What are you talking about? (laughs) It's not a hibernation period. Like we're going to just come out of this and do a big old stretch and then just go back to normal. That is not going to happen. That's so insensitive and tone deaf to what is going on in the world. It's it's not, you ought to be glad. I mean, cope however you need to cope, call it whatever you need to call it. But the, the, the reality is, this is, I don't want to say it's like on the level of the bubonic plague, because that was something entirely different. But it's as scary because people are dying. People are losing loved ones. People, you know, the economy is collapsing. We have an administration that isn't giving the people any help whatsoever. You have people who aren't listening. You have people who are protesting. I mean, it's, it's craziness. It's madness all day, every day. The last thing anybody needs is for you to tell them that you lack discipline in the middle of a pandemic. That is insane to me. Yeah. (laughs) And so insensitive. Again, grace, grace on top of grace on top of grace for not only yourself, but each other. Yeah. And and trying to help wherever you can, you know, help yourself, you know, like they say on on an airplane, put your own mask on before helping somebody else. A lot of us still need to, you know, put our own mask on. I um, won't well, actually, we've been putting our mask on, but you know what I'm saying. Do that. Take care of yourself. And then, you know, try to help take care of others at the same time. And just be mindful and cognizant of the time that we're living in. There's no need to push anybody to become an entrepreneur in the middle of a pandemic. That's oh, my crazy. God. The people that have been like, <laughs> let me show you how to flip your stimulus check. Don't, oh, just, my oh, my God. <laughs> Why? 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 Oh, God. That is not the move right now. Oh, man. (laughs) So aside from, you know, how you keep motivated and inspired during a time like this, what are you doing in your spare time? Like, do you have other projects that you work on or or things that you do outside of the work at the museum? Yes. I I like to say I have two full-time jobs. So, of course, the one that's, 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 you know, keeping... The bills paid and the roof over my head is the museum. But the one that I love through and through is, of course, being the founder of Make Entertainment. So Make, what we do at Make is we are creating our own original superhero comic book universe that's featuring superheroes that don't typically get a lot of spotlight. You know, we're just coming off of 10 years of the Marvel Cinematic Universe And we've had Iron Man, Captain America, Thor, Ant-Man. But in that 10-year span, we've had one Black Panther. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And that's it. And it it was phenomenal, right? But I want more. Other people want more. What we're trying to do and what we're doing is positioning characters and stories of color, you know, Black, Brown, Asian, Samoan, different sexualities, different religions. Um, We have able-bodied, we have disabled, you know, positioning women of color at the forefront of our superhero universe. And that has been a project that I've been working on officially, you know, on on the books for eight years, but since I was a kid, to be quite honest. Okay. I guess, you know, knowing that, you know, this sort of has come out of a love of comic books and everything. Can you talk a little bit about, I guess, the the characters or the like the types of stories that you tell through Make? Absolutely. So right now, um, we're getting ready to actually we're in production. Are you familiar with the tall tale legend John Henry? Yeah. Okay. Actually so, before you go into that, there was actually a movie. I don't know if you saw the John Henry movie that came out earlier this year. 
Did you see it? No. Okay. It's terrible. It is. <laughs> you probably shouldn't see it. I only mention this because I was thinking the other day of like, what was the last movie that I remember like actually sitting down and watching from beginning to end before all this pandemic stuff happened. Uh-huh. And it was that movie. <laughs> it's terrible. So Terry, so Cruz, <laughs> Terry Cruz stars as John Henry, who is a, I think like ex con or something. Wow. And the nemesis is ludicrous. Like ludicrous is the bad guy. You know what? I saw the trailer for that. And, and I just he's got I like was... some weird thing on his, yeah. jaw, like a gold thing. It's a terrible movie. It's, it's <laughs> terrible, but, and also like really gory. Like I watched it and I was like, there's a lot of blood in this movie. <laughs> like I was not expecting John Henry to be like a ex con gangbanger or whatever, but yeah, it's a terrible That's... movie. But anyway, John Henry, I'm sorry. That was a weird. No, no, you're fine. Um, (laughs) (laughs) You know, now that you mention it. Yeah, I I did see the trailer and I just it didn't give me John Henry. What it gave me is using some of the elements so using the name John Henry. And then, of course, associating that with the hammer. Those are the two biggest brand elements for John Henry. And uh, but it didn't feel like the John Henry from the tall tales that we've all, you know, kind of grew up on and heard or watched. On, you know, the Disney had an amazing little cartoon. Yeah, I remember that. Movie. Yeah, that was phenomenal. It felt like they just took those elements and slapped them on Terry Crews and just called it John Henry. And that's what we were not set on doing. We actually wanted to honor who John Henry was in his folklore and continue on the story. So my issue with the story was that he ended up dead. Like he, it was just a phenomenal tale of this black man beating out the machine. And he was just strong and courageous and brave and just superhuman in his own right. Then he dies. And it's like, what, what, what the hell? And it's like, okay, how can we bring this character back to life in such a way that continues that narrative, like pulls him out the grave honors that narrative and that character, but also positions him to be in his rightful place as a mythical, legendary figure that both needs a seat and probably, you know, well, has a seat in pop culture, just needs to reclaim his seat. So we we did a lot of back and forth, a lot of studying of um, who the character was, a lot of just analyzing the balance of John Henry. And just really figuring out who this man was and what it is, is we have John Henry. You see him, you know, striking the nails into the railroad and he's beating out the steam drill and he dies. But at that moment is where we bring John Henry, the tall tales world and the make world together. And we bring him back to life using magic. Then we see John Henry continue on his story, and he's joined by some of his fellow tall tale figures, Johnny Appleseed, Paul Bunyan, and Calamity Jane. Okay. And uh, they're on a mission, and they're doing what they do. And um, the story, it, it really is about just putting down the building blocks to who this legend is, why he's such a legend, and rebuilding his mythology in our own universe. And then we also introduce uh, Anunzi, the spider. 
our, and our own take on him as well. So he is our premier villain. And uh, what it is, is Anunzi is pulling a god move and he's flooding the earth, but rather with water, he's using magic and introducing humanity into the age of magic. And it's John Henry that's going to help us figure out how to navigate and move through that world going forward. Interesting. So is this kind of what makes up the entire universe or is this just sort of one like title and there's sort of several stories within that? This is one title and there's going to be several stories within that. So what it is, is it's, it's really hard to introduce brand new characters. And we've had a lot of success introducing our own original characters. Mm-hmm. But what we found was, is that when we mentioned the name John Henry, everybody would just like perk up like, oh, John, that John Henry. And their interest would get even go further down the rabbit hole. Like they would stay at, we would be at comic conventions. They would stay at the booth longer to talk about John Henry and then discover some of the other characters. Uh-huh. So we had this idea, if we strategically put John Henry and then, of course, Johnny Appleseed, Calamity Jane, Paul Bunyan, Anunzi, and Anunzi, these characters people are familiar with but are also in the public domain where we can freely use them. Oh, okay. They know these characters, right? And since they know these characters, we can at least pull a crowd of people, an audience of people in through that way and reintroduce them to these characters, but also begin to introduce our own characters through these tall tale and folklore legends at the same time. Interesting. I didn't think about that. The fact that they're public domain kind of does make it a lot easier to use because yes. <laughs> I would imagine with doing, you know, comic book ideas, of course, plagiarism or, or any kind of potential copyright infringement could be a big issue, mm-hmm. especially if it even has anything close to the word mutant in it. I feel like Marvel will have like a phalanx of lawyers swoop in or yes. something. If you, <laughs> if you mentioned that. So no, no, that's, that's good. With these titles, have you already started producing work that kind of relates to that or is it still just kind of in the idea phase it has taken us eight years to create what we're calling this this the first book john henry invictus and we have created several comics before that we call them mini issues the one page comics we have two other full comics out as well for the lack of a better term i can't figure it out right now but those are pretty much mvps so uh, minimum viable products for us yeah they it was just us exploring our own universe and these characters and how to take all of what we've created over the last eight or so years and put it into a single book and have that book be the start of a much bigger story. It all comes to a head in this in this newly introduction of make in this universe and of course John Henry and John Henry Invictus. Interesting. Okay. So with the ideas, you want to make sure that, and I'm just assuming this, but are you only looking for those kind of ideas that are in the public domain or are you also coming up with original stuff? Yeah. So we have, we have actually several, before we got down to the Johnny Appleseeds and things like that, we had several characters that we had created um, originally. And we, they actually, like I said, we, we did a very good job at having these different characters find audiences. Like we didn't necessarily need to include Appleseed and Calamity Jane uh, along with John Henry, but we saw the reaction from John and 
it made sense to include these other tall tale figures along with him just to kind of play off that, you know, that what if that crossover type of narrative or possibility that these legends were somehow together way back in the 1800s and, you know, doing what they do. Like they were the first superheroes. Uh-huh. And uh, that was just an idea that we just kept entertaining over and over and over again and finally did it. But we do have several other characters that we've, you know, created actually created one of them, Tremor, back when I was at Edinburgh. It was for a project. It was for my computer animation project. And um, I created, at the time, he was known as Rocksteady. And over the years, you know, he just, you know, went from Rocksteady to Tremor. But he is perhaps the first, he actually, he is the first main character that ever existed. He's been around for like over 10 years now. Wow. Wow. Okay. This sounds like, I don't know if you've heard of this idea before. I remember hearing about it, I don't know, God, this may have been at least 10 years ago or so, maybe that long ago, but there was an artist out of, I think it was out of Houston, and he did something, or he was doing something kind of similar called Gullah Sci-Fi Mysteries. Does that sound familiar? Mm-hmm. No, it does not. I looked that up. So he was taking these kind of stereotypical black figures and transforming them into superheroes. So you had like Uncle Remus, you had Chef Rastus, who was the the chef on the cream of wheat box, mm-hmm. and then the titular character, well, not the titular character, but the, the main character was Mammy, but it was okay. spelled M-A-M-E, like Mam-E, uh-huh. and like had, su- and it was basically looked like Aunt Jemima, but like had <laughs> super strength. She took the the elements of like, a broom and an iron and a washboard and like the broom was her like Mjolnir. You know what I mean? Wow. <laughs> I, I remember, I think it was called the broom <laughs> cosmic or something like that. And I remember seeing it because like there were just a series of posters. I don't know if he ever took that idea and like went further with it, but I remember seeing just a series of posters that were sort of done up in a, like a old school comic book style and being like, wow, I would read the shit out of that. Like, <laughs> like that seems really dope. That sounds like, really dope, actually. I'm like, yeah, I'm, I'm, like, intrigued. I'm like, Mammy <laughs> is fighting Uncle Remus? Mammy is fighting <laughs> Chef Rock? Like, I remember seeing that just being so enamored with it. I don't know if he ever took that further or took that to another level or if it just kind of stayed as these posters or whatever, but mm-hmm. it was really, really interesting. I want to say John Henry might have been in that, too, or at least the... I know Tar Baby was in it, like wow. Br'er Rabbit and Tar Baby. One of the things I remember seeing was called The Grits of Wrath. Mm-hmm. Like Mammy fighting a huge monster made out of grits. Grits. <laughs> I mean, I come on. It. Like, I love that. Like, that <laughs> <laughs> like, taking those elements and making them into something like that is amazing. I'm a huge comic book fan. I, I mean, I'm not up on comics now, although maybe that should be the thing that I get into over the pandemic. Like I like get back into comic books again. Cause I really haven't, yeah. I haven't been too up on, I know there's like house of X and all that stuff. I used to be a huge, huge Marvel fan. And then just kind of like fell off from it. I had a, an idea for a long time to do a graphic novel. Like I had come up with my own characters and mm-hmm. plots and settings and everything. And to be honest, 2020 was going to be the year that I started to like kick things off with it. Yeah. And this pandemic has just sucked the life out of me. I hate to say that, but like I've had this graphic novel idea 
since I was like a teenager. Mm. And now it's like, oh man, this is going to be the year that I do it. And it may still be the year that I do it. Like it's, right. it's April, at least when we're recording this, it's like late April. I may still have time to start putting it out there in some small way, but I'm curious, since you've been kind of doing this on such a small scale, what do you want kind of the the end result to be? Do you want this to be a graphic novel? Do you want it to be a movie? Like, how far do you want to take this idea? Well, we are starting with a graphic novel, and we've been taking the manga approach to where... So the thing is, we love superheroes, right? But we also really love anime. We love manga. We love sci-fi. We love fantasy. And uh, we had just been really... A lot of our conversations had shifted to anime and manga over the years because none of us were actually reading Marvel or DC either. Like we had just fell off much similar to you. I don't, I don't know what it was. It just, it just got tired of the, of the same type of storytelling. Um, I personally got tired of just not seeing the best representation, just authentic representation. And the stories just started, you know, started to get too dry for me. And um, so we had really started talking about manga and anime and then we really love the way manga was distributed can mm-hmm. i have issues when pronouncing that word but with manga let's say you're you know you're doing my hero academia yeah super popular right now as far as anime is concerned but the manga has been around since i think 2016 i think it has been and maybe actually sooner than that don't don't quote me on that but okay. what it is is you start from the first chapter whenever that chapter was published, and then you just read forward. There is no issue one through 14, and then things get rebooted, and then there's and then, and then there's a new issue one after that, and then it runs for six issues, and then they reboot it again, yeah. and then it's another issue, and it's like, okay, where do I start, and why are there 16 different Spider-Man titles, and <laughs> what is going on? I all- hate that. <laughs> yes. I hate that. <laughs> I think that's probably why I fell off. It's like, yeah. I, I have... I, well, they're in my storage unit, but like, I was collecting comics when mm-hmm. I was a kid. Like, I have all of my old comics from like the '90s, and then I think like as I went to college, I was still buying comics here or there. I was getting like mag. Remember Wizard Magazine? Yeah, I have a box. I still have a box of Wizards in my room right now. Like, I I would have all that stuff, but like it got harder to find where to buy print comic books. Mm-hmm. I know stuff was kind of moving online. And then honestly, like I was like young and in college and was running the streets. I wasn't really like <laughs> thinking like, oh, I got to get that new X-Men title. I was like, we going to the club right. tonight. I wasn't really, it wasn't in like top of mind. I still enjoyed the concept, but mm-hmm. it wasn't, I guess, in a way where it was, I don't know, maybe like super accessible. I mean, now, even while we're in this pandemic, like comics aren't being printed now. Right. Like comics have kind of come to a stop. At least the mainstream, you know, Marvel, DC, et cetera, have come to a standstill. So it's kind of a great time to catch up. But yes, it is. like you say, like, like where, where do you start? Where, yeah, where do you start? Where do you jump in? <laughs> like for Marvel, I'm gonna jump in at the the powers of X thing that's going on or has went on, I guess, because yeah. I think that's supposed to be like the new it's retelling good. or the new it's canon really or whatever. Good. Yeah. I'm gonna start there mm-hmm. um and see where I go because there certainly were comics I loved in the past, and then like they just took a direction, and I was like, I don't like this anymore. Right. You know, I can relate. I can relate. Yes. <laughs> but yeah, that problem. We didn't want to figure out how to play into that system, and we didn't want our audience, the people following us, 
to play into that system anymore because I don't think that system is doing anybody justice other than the Marvel, DC, those those type of businesses, companies. Yeah. And so we, we sat down, we said, okay, how do we want to do this? It comes in three different tiers. So at first we have what we call seasons. So seasons start a new arc and in turn they end it too. So that the first season we have coming out now is season one. And then within those seasons are chapters, just like manga. And chapters are the individual books within an arc. So a season can have three chapters. It can have 30. It may have 300. And whatever the story calls for within that season, that's how many chapters will be in that season. And then together, those chapters make up a volume. And that's the collection of chapters within that season. So John Henry, the first season, season one, chapter one is John Henry Invictus. And this season has four chapters. So once we close out those four chapters, that will complete season one. You'll be able to collect chapters one through four in a volume set. And then we'll then kick off season two. So since season one is chapters one through four, season two will kick off and start with chapter five. And it'll it'll go for however many chapters that is. And let's say the number is we have, we go up to chapter 12 in season two. Season two closes with chapter 12 and season three will kick off with chapter 13 and so forth. So mm-hmm. no matter 10, 20 years from now, the starting point will always should should always be season one, chapter one. And you just keep reading forward from there. Gotcha. So you've made it in a way where it's going to be easily accessible for anyone to jump in. Like, even if it's the middle of the story, they can say, OK, this is chapter five. I need to go back to chapter one. Exactly. Because like, yeah, with the regular sort of comics, it's really hard to tell like, yeah, where's the, where's a good jumping in point? You know, there's so much lore and variance and and just knowledge that you have to have to even approach some Mm -hmm. of these titles. And I think the cinematic universe has done a good job of sort of flattening that for a lot of people or getting people interested in comic books that maybe weren't interested because of that very issue. Mm -hmm. Like Mm -hmm. if you start with the movie and say, I like this character, then you're like, okay, well, if you like this character, then you might like these particular issues or or this trade paperback. It sort of gives right. you a bit of a bit of an entry point there. So, okay, absolutely, cool, cool. So, one thing that we've got uh, as sort of a running theme on the show for this year is about sort of you know blackness and black design in the future. And so, I'll ask you this question. It's the same question I've asked every guest this year so far. How are you using your design skills? to help build a more equitable future? Right now, given the conditions of where we're living and what we're living in and what we're living through and the amount of information, both false and true, the amount of, rather the lack of transparency, the lack of clarity. Not everybody understands what social distancing means, right? That was a very new term that we had to globally figure out and, and understand. And there still may be some gray areas. However, people understand when you say stay six feet apart mm-hmm. or stay home or go out and get groceries once a week or, you know, whatever those bullet points are, people can understand that. I think what is mainly at fault and what we're currently living in has been the lack of clarity in our messaging and the lack of transparency and also the lack of clarity in the stories that are being told. So that type of, I guess you say, having taken that and implementing that into design, and I push this at the museum, 
And I push this at make at the same time. And I push this wherever else I'm working too. When we design characters at make, we make sure that they are designed for optimal clarity. You can understand who this character is simply by looking at them, their posture, their stance, the color palette, design choices. It's not a whole lot of flair. Anything on that character is absolutely essential to that character. If you take it away, something goes missing. If you add something to it, it becomes too much. It's the same with artist storytelling and how we you know, um, break down the lore, the power sets. If we can't explain it to a five-year-old, it's too complicated. If a five-year-old can't look at this design and draw it, either from memory or just by looking at it and it's too much for them, it's too complicated. The same with at the museum. If we can't explain this simply, if we can't put messaging out there that is clear, that communicates the intent and gets people you know, to take an action, a specific action that we need them to take, it's too much. We're speaking too much. Nobody wants to read a dissertation. We got to tone it down. So moving forward, the more clear, the more succinct, the more concise that we are in design, in storytelling, and in our messaging, the better. Because when we convolute things, when things get messy and they get overly complicated, that's when we start to lose people. That's when we get mixed signals, mixed messaging, people kind of taking their own interpretation of things. And it puts out different narratives that just confuses a population. And that's what we're going through right now. I mean, one week it was... Uh, COVID isn't airborne. Then, you know, rather, one day it's airborne, the next it isn't airborne. One day it's it gets in through your eyes, wear sunglasses and goggles. The next day, oh, I never heard of that. It, it's, it's a whole lot of madness going on because we're not being clear in what we're saying. That's what I think is going to help us create a better future and a better tomorrow. I mean, I, I need every governor, I need every mayor, every political figure to just use plain English. I think that's where a lot of Democratic candidates, a lot of presidential candidates suffer is they don't use clear messaging or clear design or they don't tell a good enough story, which puts them over the edge. I mean, we got Joe Biden because we got Joe Biden. It wasn't like he had a great story. It wasn't. Obama was the only one to do it right. He gave us this, this message and this story of hope. It was very clear what we were getting with Obama. Everybody was on the same page with Obama. Right. There was not a beat skipped. Mm-hmm. Anywhere. Bernie, I don't know. Biden, I don't know. Kamala, Corey, I think I mentioned George, Lizzie, Elizabeth Warren. I mean, I, I voted for Elizabeth Warren, but even then I was like, okay, you still don't have a strong enough. I can get down with your platforms and, and what you got listed on your website, but your story, where is your narrative that really makes me just believe in what you're doing? So I think moving forward, clarity, transparency, and better storytelling is going to create a much better world for us. Where do you see yourself in the next five years? Like, it's 2025. We are hopefully, thankfully, knock on wood on the other side of what we're going through right now. Yes. What kind of work do you see yourself doing? I'm just full-time at Make. Make is all about putting things into the world that give other people hope. It is using your creativity, be it storytelling, artistry, whatever it is you do, you do it to give somebody else hope, to make somebody else feel powerful. That's just the core of our work. So I'm hoping that I am five years from now, you know, we're, we're talking about 
an animation or a video game, or we're talking about, a, you know, the next toy line for me. We're having those types of conversations. Like we, we have arrived. We're here. You've heard about us in the Hollywood Reporter. You've heard about us in, in Forbes magazine. You know, we, we have I've been on, God knows, Oprah talking about (laughs) what I've created within the next five years. We're looking to start casting people for a Netflix show or something, but that's where I'm looking to position myself in the next five years. I'm looking to go just all the way in with make within by 2025. Well, just to kind of wrap things up here, where can our audience find out more about you and about your work online? So for me, all of my social media is under It's Ed Williams, I-T-S, Ed Williams. So I'm mostly on Instagram and Twitter. Facebook, you may catch me every now and then, but it's mostly face. I mean, Instagram and Twitter under, uh, again, It's Ed Williams. Also, you can find my personal website at edwilliams.me. For all things make, we are under We Are Make, M-A-Y-K-E, on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook. And you can go to wearemake.com to check out everything going on with Make. You can actually sign up right now and get a free 20-page comics. You can actually get a, a feel and understanding and, and see these original characters that I've just you know got done talking about. We'll give that to you for free. So you can kind of explore some of the early work that we've done in building this universe and this, and this comic book company. All right. Sounds good. Well, Ed, I want to thank you so much for coming on this show. You know, I told you before we started recording. I hadn't gotten back on the mic in a few weeks. I was feeling a little (laughs) rusty, you know, just kind of as you were saying before about going through this pandemic, like last week was not a great week for me. And so Mm -hmm. I had even honestly was coming into this interview, like, I'm not sure how this is going to go because I don't feel like I'm at like my best. But hearing your story and hearing your enthusiasm for the work that you do, especially for telling stories whether it's through make or whether it's, you know, through the museum. For me, it's been helpful. Like I needed this. It was like the B12 Mm. shot that I needed. And hopefully (laughs) for people that are listening, they'll get that as well. But I'm really excited to see what you do next. I mean, a lot of people don't really look at, I think, the South in general as a big creative area. Certainly probably not like Tennessee, you know, or Memphis or anything like that. But hearing you talk about the city and then seeing the work that you're doing coming out of the city, I mean, for me, that gives me hope that lets me know that, you know, the South got something to say. And so I definitely feel like you've got something to say with the work that you're doing. And hopefully a lot of people will be around to hear that and see that in the future. So thank you so much for coming on the show. I appreciate it. Thank you. It has been an honor and a pleasure. And yes, please come on down. Like I said, we got a seat waiting for you when this pandemic is over. So please come on down to Memphis. And I, I thank you so much for having me on here. It has been an honor. Big thanks to Ed Williams, and of course, thanks to you for listening. You can find out more about Ed and his work through the links in the show notes at provisionpath.com. And of course, thanks to our sponsor for this episode, Facebook Design. To learn more about how the Facebook Design community is designing for human needs at unprecedented scale, please visit facebook.design. Revision Path is brought to you by Lunch, a multidisciplinary creative studio in Atlanta, Georgia. Are you looking for some creative consulting for your next project? Then let's do lunch. Visit us at yepitslunch.com. I'll put a link to it in the show notes. This podcast is created, hosted, and produced by me, Maurice Cherry, 
with engineering and editing by RJ Basilio. Our intro voiceover is by Music Man Dre, with intro and outro music by Yellow Speaker. So what did you think of this episode? Hit us up on Twitter or Instagram, or even better, by leaving us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. Just like I said at the top of the show with Sam Greater Than, if you leave us a great review, I'll read it right here on the show. As always, thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next time.